0: Good morning. Good
1: afternoon.
0: We're going to resume our study of the end times. And today we're going to start in one of the most important end times passages ever, Daniel chapter 9. And so if y'all would take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 9, we're going to read verses 24 through 27. And we're going to read these other passages too. I don't want to go too fast. I feel like sometimes I do that, but I don't want to take anything for granted. Today we're talking about the nature of the tribulation, and hopefully we'll also talk about the nature of the rapture. So the past two lessons in this series have been about the millennium and some pretty broad stroke issues that deal with premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. And if you've been listening to us on Friday nights, we're tying in the same topic, but yet we're approaching it from a different angle. We're talking about divine healing, sign gifts, and so it's a another subtopic that you can research if you want by listening to us on Fridays. But we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9, starting in verse number 25, or sorry, 24. And I'll begin reading there. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people and upon thy holy city to finish the transgression and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint The most holy. So, as far as prophecy concerning the nation of Israel, this particular prophecy is giving us information about how it's all going to come to a head, the consummation of all things. Verse 25, it goes on and says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem unto the Messiah the Prince shall be seven weeks and threescore and two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Now, we're not going to get into how this prophecy pertains to the coming of Christ the first time as much today, but if you do a little bit of math and you know where to start counting, 445 or 444 BC is when the commandment went forth to rebuild and restore Jerusalem. That happened in the days of Nehemiah. The whole book concerns that decree of Artaxerxes is mentioned there. And if you start counting from that point, it is exactly what it says here, seven weeks and three score in two weeks. And so if you, if you do the math, it's 483 in biblical years or sorry, um, I may have got that backwards there, but it ultimately comes up to uh, 476 years whenever you are going from um, one calendar to the other. So when you look at the biblical calendar, their year was 360 days a year. Our calendar is 365. So whenever you go from one to the other, you got to do a little bit of math. But uh, this accurately predicts that the Messiah will come in 33 AD. And that's when he came. And so it's a very powerful prophecy that you can use to share with people who don't believe in the supernatural nature of the Bible. And especially if you're talking with someone who's a Jew, And they respect the Old Testament. This is a really good prophecy to share with them about how Jesus is the Messiah. But we're going to push past that now. Uh, Verse 26, After three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. And the end thereof shall be with the flood. And unto the end of the war desolations are determined. So this is referring to 70 AD after the Jews rejected Jesus as the Messiah It was prophesied that 40 years after the temple would be destroyed, Jesus said not one stone uh, would be left unturned. And so that's what happened in 70 AD. Verse 27, though, takes us to the end times. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. So now this is the 70th week, the last week. A week has seven days. Each day represents a year. So one week would be seven years. He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week. This he refers to the Antichrist. And in the midst of the week, that is three and a half years into the covenant, he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation, refers to the offering, to cease. And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even unto the consummation. And that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. So he's going to be judged and that'll take place at the end of the week. So for those seven years, there's going to be a covenant initially instituted. It's going to be a covenant between the Antichrist and the many. And the many there uh, refers to the people of Israel that the Antichrist is making the covenant with. And it says that he is going to break that covenant three and a half years through. We're going to see more of that when we get to the book of Revelation. There are lots of details about it. And of course, he'll be judged at the end of that seven year period. So this is where we as premillennialists and also as People who believe in a pre-trib rapture, this is where we get the idea that there's going to be seven years, and this seven-year period is also referred to in the book of Revelation. So it divides it up. It refers to three and a half years. It talks about the number of days. I think it's 1,260 days is what's referred to there. So John, in writing Revelation, is calling our attention back to Daniel chapter nine. So when we refer to the tribulation as Christians, um, we're referring to a time period preceding the millennium, lasting seven years, and I believe that the rapture precedes that seven year period, and we'll talk about the evidence for that in just a moment. Yes, Christy. Yes, exactly. Three hundred and sixty day years. I know it's it's fascinating, ain't it? And it's another confirmation of that idea that when we're doing prophecy and it's mentioning a number of years in the old testament, we have to take, you know, that into consideration that it's three hundred and sixty days. And when you do that you find amazing discoveries. Uh, There's another prophecy in Ezekiel 4, which Grant Jeffrey was known for writing a book on. Not the whole book was about that prophecy, but it was a big part of it. And he showed how in Ezekiel 4, the restoration of Israel to the land in 1948 is prophesied. And it gives a number of years. He tells you that, okay, each year is 360 days. And so when you do calculation and you start counting, Uh, from the time the decree went out that they could return back to the land. I think that was in uh, 537. Cyrus uh, made that decree. When you count from there, it takes you to 1948. And if you were to do a little bit more math, it would take you to May 1948. So it's pretty specific. It's amazing prophecy. But yes, uh, 360 days for a biblical year. Now, let's look at a couple other passages that talk about this time period, and they give us a little bit more information on it. So somebody... To save us time this morning, somebody get Jeremiah thirty verses four through nine, which is up there on the slide, and somebody get Zechariah 1 through five. So, who wants to get the Jeremiah passage? All right, Scott's got that. Who wants to get the Zechariah passage? I've got it. Back. That's fine. Sorry, <laughs> I
1: got this morning.
0: You're fine. Go ahead. These are the
1: words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah for thus says the lord i have heard i have heard a sound of trembling of fear and not of peace and now i and now in see can can a male labor with child what do i see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in labor all the faces turn pale alas for the day is great so that none so that no one is like it it is even the time of jacob's trouble But he shall be saved out of it for it shall come to pass in that day says the Lord of hosts that I shall break his yoke off from off his neck and tear away their bonds and strangers shall no longer make them make them their slaves but they shall serve the Lord of their God and and David their king whom I will raise up for them.
0: Awesome. So that's an amazing prophecy. And it gives us a title that we often use to refer to the tribulation. So from this point on, as we're doing our study in Revelation, I might refer to this time period as Jacob's trouble. Now, it is called the tribulation, the great tribulation, in fact, in Matthew 24. But when it refers to the great tribulation there, it's actually referring to the second half. So if we're going to use the term tribulation and be really precise about it, then we'd be referring to the second half of Daniel's 70th week. Um, Jacob's trouble also seems to begin the second half of Daniel's 70th week. They're not persecuted by the antichrist until he breaks his covenant with them halfway through that week. Now in revelation, that doesn't mean that the first half of these seven years are going to be a cakewalk. Okay. It's not going to be like that. In fact, because globally, we're going to see lots of plagues taking place. The two witnesses that are preaching during that time period, they're mentioned in revelation 11. They're going to be striking the earth with many plagues, and it says specifically that there'll be no rain for three and a half years. And so it's going to be a very catastrophic time period. I believe that when you understand Revelation properly, uh, that the trumpet judgments that are mentioned take place in the first half of the tribulation rather than the second half. So it's going to be a very uh, world-shaking time period. But as far as the Jews and the Israelites are concerned, the persecution of them will not begin until halfway through the tribulation. That's whenever the abomination of desolation takes place. That's referred to in Daniel chapter 9. Jesus refers to it in Matthew chapter 24. And so that's when the Antichrist will go into the temple. He will proclaim himself as God. Paul refers to that in 2 Thessalonians 2. So you can see that Daniel chapter 9 is a key prophecy because the New Testament authors are referring back to it a lot. Even if they don't cite that particular passage, the phrases that they use harken back to it. So it's key to doing any interpretation of the book of Revelation. That's why we're talking about it today. But uh, we read from Jeremiah 30 about Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble. Uh, Let's now read from Zechariah 14, 1 through 5.
1: Watch for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted, and the women raped half of the population will be taken into captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city then the lord will go out to fight against those nations as he has fought in times past on that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives east of jerusalem and the mount of olives will split apart making a wide valley running from east to west half the mountain will move to the north and half towards the south you will flee through this valley for it will reach across to Azel. yes you will flee as you did from the earthquake in the days of king uzziah of judah then the Lord, my
0: God, will come and all his holy ones with him. Awesome. That's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. It says that his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And so many people have pointed out Jesus' ministry, whenever he was in and around Jerusalem, it's centered on the Mount of Olives. And in the Old Testament, it's significant too, because that's where the glory of the Lord, when the glory of the Lord is pictured as leaving the temple. and The glory, by the way, is pictured personally. When the glory of the Lord is described, uh, he is described in a human likeness. So, this is the pre incarnate eternal Son of God who was there in the temple, resting between the cherubim and the Holy of Holies. And Ezekiel sees the Lord leave the temple and go out the east, the east gate, and go up to the Mount of Olives. And here in Zechariah, it tells us that when he returns, he will return upon the Mount of Olives. So, that was his exit, and that's going to be his entrance. And in the New Testament, where does Jesus ascend to the Father? The Mount of Olives. So it's very significant. He will literally touch his feet on this same mountain that he ascended from. Twice in the Old Testament and the New Testament. When
1: so you're standing up there, they know the exact spot. And you can look down and see
0: the temple. So there's direct correlation. It's, it's going to be visible. It's going to be uh, the cause of an earthquake here. And I can only imagine, Steve, you know, you, you've talked about your experiences being there, but standing there and thinking that according to Bible prophecy, this mount will one day split in two and God's going to create a great valley so as people can flee from it or flee through it and be saved from persecution. So he's going to come and deliver his people. So again, you see the commonality here, Jeremiah, Zechariah, they're depicting the same time period where the Jewish people will be persecuted, but yet God will come and he will deliver them. And Jeremiah mentions David, their king. I personally think that the glorified David, once he receives his resurrected body, I think that he will have authority over the Jewish people in some way. I don't know how that's all going to work out because the disciples were promised that they'd sit on twelve throne too. So how how God arranges that, who knows? But I do believe that he will reign over the Jewish people. But I also know that he will have, alive in that day, physical descendants who today exist, okay? even if they don't know that they're David's descendants, and they will have a role in administration as well. Because in Ezekiel, it talks about uh, the prince who's going to be of the offspring of David, and he is going to have a non-glorified body, marry and have children, and he is going to eat before the Lord, eat in the Lord's presence, though he will not be permitted to go into the Holy of Holies itself. So we see a lot of stuff about David in the millennium. (laughs) He was, absolutely. And and when it talks about here, his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, note something here. In Jeremiah, it talks about David, which I think that while literally that could refer to David, but it could also refer to Christ because he is a descendant of David and David was often a type of Christ. Uh, Psalm 22, when it talks about the crucifixion of the Messiah, right? David is speaking, but David was not crucified at any point in his life. Okay, So that's referring to Christ. So in Jeremiah 30, it's referring to David. Okay pointing to Jesus, but in Zechariah here, the Lord himself is the one who sets foot on the Mount of Olives. But he's anthropomorphically presented. His feet rest on the Mount of Olives. Now, someone might be able to like dismiss that and say maybe it's figurative language, but what we know about the incarnation and Jesus literally setting foot on the Mount of Olives and, and ascending physically from it, we know that this is referring to Jesus and his feet literally touching the same place where he went up from, the very exact same place. And we see the combination of two themes, the descendant of David, but also Jesus' deity as the glory of the Lord. He's the God-man. So when he reigns in Jerusalem, this is amazing. This is where God and man are one in an amazing way. Whose throne will Jesus reign on? Will it be the throne of David? Yes, it will be. But he'll also be in the Holy of Holies. Was David's throne ever in the Holy of Holies? No, isn't it amazing that God is bringing man specifically here, David, bringing man into his presence. And he is not only our creator, but he's also our brother. And to me, when you take these themes and you put them together, it's a beautiful confirmation of everything that we know from the New Testament. The New Testament perfectly fulfills it. And I don't see how someone couldn't read the Old Testament and see the incarnation of Jesus here. Like, how do you explain it? You cannot have a completely human messiah. If you take these prophecies literal, like this Messiah has to be, yes, a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he has to be more than that. He has to predate David. He has to be the maker of David. And that's what the New Testament teaches. And there were some rabbis who, when they considered stuff like this, they would talk about the Messiah in divine terms. So this wasn't completely foreign to them, but it was hard for them to wrap their minds around, I would say. And the Pharisees, uh, they generally would think of the Messiah in terms of like a David. He He's just a King that's empowered by God. You know, he's going to fight for the people. Maybe like Samson, he'll be empowered physically to battle on their behalf. But they didn't think of him in in terms more than that. And that's why Jesus challenged them and said, then why does David call the Messiah Lord? Okay, so that, that means that we're talking about something more than just a descendant. He is that, but he's also more than that. And that's why David, who normally would not show respect to a descendant, in this case he does, and he acknowledges the Messiah as his Lord. Uh, So we have both those themes coming together here in these passages. But I just wanted to share that because nowadays there's a lot of bad theology circulating on the internet. So if you're listening to us today, we want you to know we believe in the eternal deity of Jesus Christ, and we give him the greatest worship. He is equal with the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We believe in the Trinity. Um, I just wanted to share that because anytime I'm listening to somebody on the internet, I want to know where they stand when it comes to who Jesus is. But Uh, This is talking about Jacob's trouble. Now, in Matthew 24, 8, it mentions an interesting phrase that I heard my whole life, honestly, and and never understood that it referred to a rabbinic tradition. So this is something that the Jews believed in, and I just missed it because I don't have that Jewish background. But in Matthew 24, 8, when it talks about uh, prior to this, the famines, uh, pestilence, Earthquakes in diverse places, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. It says all of these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, the word sorrows here in Greek primarily refers to the sorrow of a woman in labor. And so, in the rabbinic thought, they referred to this. They had a technical phrase that they used to apply to this time period, and they called it the Hevle Mashiach, okay? The birth pangs of the Messiah, Uh, the footsteps of the Messiah. They believed that the closer the Messiah came, when the Messianic age was about to be revealed, there were going to be things like this taking place that would usher it in, that would warn people that it was just around the corner. They are, they are. And so they see these things, they just don't make that connection with Jesus, which we know one day they will, praise the Lord. Um, But the Hevle Mashiach, hopefully I'm pronouncing that close at least, That's a rabbinic idea that confirms this idea of the premillennial viewpoint. So if you were to go back to the rabbis, they did believe in a millennium. It shouldn't really surprise anybody in the first century reading Revelation 20 when it talks about the thousand years, because they believe that God designed everything to where there would be 6,000 years of work and labor and striving, and then God would remove that curse at the 7,000. Okay, that millennial period would be the days of the Messiah, the Messianic age. And right when we're about to come upon that Messianic age, they would say you're going to see stuff like this happen, the famine, the pestilence, the earthquakes. And I think we're very close to that. Now, of course, that idea that the millennium will follow 6,000 years of Earth history, I personally do subscribe to that idea. I believe in that. Uh, We'll find out for sure one day, right? There are some premillennialists that don't believe that. They would say, well, we are pretty close to that, but some of them would say we've already passed year 6000, and I don't think that we can say that for sure. There are lots of different calendars, and some of them still leave open the possibility that we haven't reached it yet. Yeah, we do. I mean, apparently year 6000 is, you know, anywhere from 2030 to 2050. It's somewhere in there, you know, we don't know exactly when, And and that's exactly what Let's hope so, right? (laughs) Uh, But of course, we know that the tribulation, as we're talking about, it precedes that millennial period, okay? So you'd have to back it up. But in the rabbinic thought, the footsteps of the Messiah were related to these birth pangs that are mentioned by Christ in Matthew 24. And so we see these things happening. I mean, I really recommend if you're listening, watch The Coming Convergence. It's a really good docudrama about this. And it shows how, yes, we've had earthquakes. Yes, we've had famines, but we're seeing these things on a global scale and all of these different things, the political prophecies, okay, the natural disasters, okay, Israel, okay, as God's clock, okay, it's, they're in the land, the prophecies are ticking away slowly and we see all these lines of evidence converging on each other, bringing us to the return of the Lord. And so I recommend that you see that docudrama, uh, But let's move on now. Let's talk about the festivals that are in the Old Testament. So in Joel chapter two, Joel chapter two, let's look at what it has to say concerning the day of the Lord. Now, if you're listening to us and you've been listening to us for a while, a while back, we've been doing a study on the feast. So we had a study about uh, Ken Johnson's book on ancient Messianic festivals. And we've been talking about things like Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah, and so I recommend going back and listening to those if you want more details, but we looked at this passage in Joel chapter 2 starting in verse 11. It says, "The Lord shall utter his voice before his army: for his camp is very great; for he is strong that executeth his word: for the day of the Lord is great and very terrible: and who can abide it? that word terrible is Nora in Hebrew, and it's where we get the phrase Yamim Noraim. And this refers to the Seven days on the Jewish calendar that are between Rosh Hashanah, the Festival of Trumpets, and Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the the seven days between those two critical feasts, which refer to the end times. Okay, it's clearly there on the nose. Anybody can see it. We know that the spring festivals were fulfilled by Christ, Pentecost, Passover. The fall festivals point to the return of the Lord Jesus, and so. The Yamim Noraim refer to this time period preceding Yom Kippur, and Yom Kippur is a time of judgment. It says here in verse number 12, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. In Zechariah it says, with the Lord appears, the Jewish people will weep over one that they had slain, the one that they had pierced. I don't know. (laughs) I guess people, uh, I would say one of the reasons is people get boxed in. Yes, they get boxed into the traditional interpretation. Everything's spiritual. It has to do with Israel. If Israel, in your mind, is still important to God, when you read these prophecies, you'll make the connections. But if you say God's cast off Israel, that's old news, and it's all the church now, then everything here has to be spiritualized. So that's really what it comes down to. Israel is the focal point of Bible prophecy.
1: And even if if you're a Jew, and you've been reading i was one for israel for instance i don't know if you watched that video, yes yeah um where they're talking about rashi and i'm not sure who rashi is but
0: yeah uh huh i think um, he was a he was a medieval rabbi i don't know if he was right. spanish spanish yeah. rabbi perhaps i'm not and entirely sure
1: like just you know um isaiah 53 thank you isaiah 53 52 53 the, his translation not his his uh, commentary on it was Obviously not right, but he was obviously trying to make it so that Jesus Jesus. wasn't, yeah, it couldn't be
0: Jesus. Yes, yes, and we we do see that, and that to me is so eye-opening, especially with Daniel chapter 9. If you read the writings of Justin Martyr, this is a time in history where they're still having these conversations with the Jews. Uh, Justin Martyr, he had a a very long dialogue with a Jew named Trifo. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that right again. You know, English is my number one language. (laughs) But anyways, he's... Southern English. But anyways, he's talking to this uh this Jew who does not believe in Jesus, okay? And uh he talks about these prophecies that point to Jesus. Uh, but Daniel chapter nine was one of those prophecies that was used at that time in the second century to try to bring the Jewish people to this realization that Jesus is the Messiah. Like, look at it, you know, and at that time they still believed that Daniel 9 wasn't completely fulfilled either because you know there's a end times component to it, because they were premillennial. But I think what happened. In the second century, before the rebellion of the Jews again, this is the second rebellion, uh, Simon Bar Kokhba was seen as a Messiah figure. Now, not everybody may have believed that, but they looked up to him. They believed he was like another David, like a judge of the ancient Israelites. Uh, That's how they envisioned him. And he did have rabbis in his corner. Uh, One of the rabbis that was in his corner was Rabbi Akiva. And the whole calendar that the Jews use today is based on an error. It was created at this time in history, and it had to do with taking the reign of Persian kings and shortening them, okay? Uh, And when you do that, you throw off the Daniel 9 prophecy, and it doesn't land on Jesus as you would like it to, right? And so, of course, it was a botched effort because Simon Bar Kokhba failed. There was no victory, but this error has not been undone. And there's a really good book on this by Floyd Nolan Jones. He's got a book on Old Testament chronology, and he points this out. That the whole calendar that's used today, the Anno Mundi calendar, is based on an error that was created most likely in reaction to Christianity, because right. old uh, um, uh, the uh, church fathers in the old days were taking these Old Testament prophecies and saying Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one. So they had to come up with some other response. Absolutely. Isaiah 53, they had to come up with another response. Yeah. Uh Daniel 9, they had to come up with another interpretation. They had to change the calendar. They had to suppress it, okay, by saying, all right, don't talk about the timing of the Messiah. Don't discuss it. You know, you just avoid it altogether. Avoid and they and they and they told people to avoid these things. They don't read Isaiah 53 in the synagogues. And, and all of this you could tell is very polemic. Okay. They're really react reacting against Christianity it at the time. Really does it. it does, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh it's like you could tell that they were very threatened. And so that's why the two biggest passages that Christians ought to go to when they're talking to Jews is Daniel 9 and Isaiah 53, because that's what they used in the early church days before the church said, we're done with the Jews. Before that happened, they used those passages. And that's why those passages fell out of popularity among the Jewish people. But again, Joel chapter 2, it's talking about the day of the Lord, but it's using terms that refer us back to these festivals. When it refers to the terrible day, it makes us think of the Yamim Noraim, the terrible days. And when it refers in verse 12 to fasting, the only feast of the Old Testament that was commanded by God that involved a fast was Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Right. So this is referring to Yom Kippur. So you see them lining up, just like Passover and Pentecost lined up in the first century with those key events of the crucifixion and, and uh, the Feast of first fruits lined up with the resurrection and Pentecost with the Holy Spirit. We see these feasts lining up a- as far as the end times go. These fall feasts correspond uh, to key events in the end times. And so when I think of the terrible day of the Lord, I shouldn't think of it in terms of just a single day, but a time period that leads up to a judgment when the Lord is revealed. And when he is revealed, there's going to be. Of course, those who have repented, those who are mourning, these are people who are accepted into the kingdom. They are Jews who have received Christ, but there's also a great judgment. And that scapegoat that is removed from the camp, and according to rabbinic traditions, was cast off a cliff and was broken on the rocks below. I think that's a very graphic picture of the Antichrist and the false prophet, who I believe will be Jews. They're going to be taken and they're going to be cast into the lake of fire at that time. So the Day of Atonement is that division. Okay, it's like the parable of the sheep and the goats that pertains to the nations in particular, but something similar is going to happen to the Jewish people, a separation. And at that time, of course, the majority of the Jewish people will have repented. But I do believe there will be some who have not. Uh, There are differences of opinion among prophecy scholars, but I do believe there will be a portion of the Jewish population that follows the Antichrist. There's going to be some that don't even make it, right? Yes, some will not even survive to the end. Yes, but I think in the end, it's going to be a pretty big division between the two. It's going to be those who remain who were faithful followers of the Lord Jesus and those who remain who were faithful followers of the Antichrist. And God's going to bring about that day of atonement. He is going to make a separation. But prior to that are those terrible days, the Yamim Noraim, the days that we see in Revelation. Now, when do they begin? Do they begin with the beginning of Daniel's 70th week? Not necessarily. I think that the day of the Lord's wrath begins as soon as the rapture happens. Uh, I I don't think, I think they overlap. I think Daniel's 70th week and the day of the Lord overlap. But let's assume that there is some gap between the rapture and the signing of the covenant. Let's say it's just a day even. Okay. That day would still be the day of the Lord's wrath after the the rapture happens because he's taken his church out. Why is he taking the church out? Because he's about to pour out his wrath. So as soon as he removes the church, the day of his wrath has begun. And yes, it will be progressively uh, intensifying throughout the, the period following the rapture. I mean, the seals are bad, but the trumpets are worse. The trumpets are bad, but the bowls are worse. So it does get worse. But after the rapture happens, God has cleared to send his wrath. And uh, that brings us to uh, this next uh, study. And we're going to finish today with this. And we'll talk about the rapture next week but turn to Luke 12, 26, or sorry, 36. Um, How about this? I will read Luke 12, 36. Somebody read Matthew 25, 6. Okay. All right, so I'm going to go to Luke 12, 36, and this is a study that I'd like to do in the future. We've been doing really good with Bible translations. It's been a really good study, Uh, but at some point, we'll take a break. We'll take a break from that. And then we're going to talk about these parables, uh, the judgment parables, you know, the sheep and the goats, uh, the unfaithful servant, the talents, the minas, these are all eschatological, uh, the 10 virgins. Okay. These are parables that I'd really love to look at. And it'd be a great study to do in the future. I'm not ready to teach on that yet. I've still got a lot of research to do, but (laughs) well, you can listen, you can listen, you know, we got the podcast, Christy, (laughs) Or we could switch it up. I mean, we could do it on a Friday. It's fine. Yeah, we could do it on a Friday. But Luke 12, uh, 36, it says, And ye yourselves like unto men that wait for their Lord, when he will return from the wedding, that when he cometh and knocketh, they may open unto him immediately. So this is a parable of his household of servants. Uh, I will unpack this more in a future study, but this household refers to Israel. Okay, the household of Israel. So the church is something that Jesus did introduce in his ministry. But if you were to look at Matthew 24 in particular, it focuses on Jewish believers. And so here, when it talks about the household, most of the servants in this parable are saved, but it does mention one servant that's not. And I believe that represents the religious leaders of the Jews who did not believe. So they were given a calling. They were given a ministry and they abused that. They were shepherds that misled the flock, but God is going to judge his people, Israel, but notice it's going to take place after he returns from the wedding. In verse number 36, huh? I wonder what wedding we're talking about here. Huh? This is something that I think Paul had the glee of sharing in his ministry. He's like, I, I this is a mystery. Not in that it was never suggested, but that a lot of these things probably just weren't thought on. They didn't think about the, okay, the wedding. All right, the wedding's the bride of Christ, the church, there's neither Jew nor Gentile. They probably didn't pick up on that. That's why Paul says, I have this special commission to elaborate on the, the mystery of the rapture, the mystery of the church. And so here, the wedding, I believe, refers to what's taking place in heaven while the tribulation's happening on earth. So while God is making a separation of his people, the Jews on earth, and we have the Yamim Noraim, and that's setting up for the Day of Atonement that's to come at the end, when he comes down and he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives. During that whole time, where are we? We're having a wedding celebration. So somebody read, I think it was uh, Sandy, read uh, 25.6, Matthew 25.6. In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here come, Here's the groom, come out to meet him. Here's the groom, come out to meet him. Now, you notice that if you understand the context of this parable... The bridegroom has already gone and he's gotten his bride by the time they knock on the door. Okay. So there are some who are allowed in and some who are not. The door is shut on them, but the ones who are allowed in, they're coming onto a celebration that's already commenced because the bridegroom has already got his bride. So who's the bride? Now the virgins do not refer to the church, but the bride does. So if you want to know where you are in the parable of the ten virgins, it's often been mispreached. Many people will say, oh, the church are the virgins that they have the oil in their lamps and they've been keeping them burning. But that's referring to Jewish believers in Jesus who come to faith during the tribulation. These are people that hear the preaching of Moses and Elijah. They repent, they get saved, and they're ready to enter the kingdom when Jesus returns. But by this point, he's already come and gotten his bride. And so this is talking about the church. So if you want to know the nature of the tribulation, what is it for? It's for the Jewish people. And I would also say it's God giving a second chance to those Gentiles as well, who are left behind in the rapture. Many Gentiles will be saved through the preaching ministry of saved Jewish people. And we, and we see that Matthew 25, you know, the sheep and the goats. Okay. Who are the sheep? These are saved members of the nations. That's referring to the Gentiles, not the Jews. But, uh, It really focuses on, during this time period, the Jewish people and their ministry to the world around them. But the church at this point is gone. They're taken up in the Harpazo, the the carrying away that Paul talks about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And so that is what we're going to get into next week. I don't want to go too fast through that because I want to show you that the rapture and the second coming are not the same. A lot of people take them as the same thing, but they're not. There's a separation in the Bible, distinction made between the rapture and the second coming. And then we'll have to, of course, get into the question of when does the rapture take place? If it's not the second coming at the end of the tribulation, how far back does it occur from that event? Is it mid-trib? Is it pre-trib? Well, I'm going to go ahead and tell you that I believe it's pre-trib, but I'm going to defend that next week as we go further into this study. So thank you so much for listening to us. Uh, God bless you. We hope that this was edifying, and we hope that you listen to us again.